Father in heaven, we ask you to bless us now as we look together into the testimony of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have given us this word for our instruction, for our encouragement, for our correction. And Lord, we pray that it may be indeed a lamp unto our feet today by your grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. William Googe calls the biographical examples we find in Hebrews chapter 11 illustrations of the vigor, of the vitality, of the strength, of the liveliness, of the dynamics of faith. This is where we see faith played out in the scripture. And if you look at uh, the opening statement concerning the faith of Abraham that we have in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, you'll find there uh, an encapsulation of what we've just read from Genesis chapter 12. So Hebrews 11:8 says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was. Now those words just sort of bring together what we we just read. But the record of Abraham's journey actually begins back in Genesis chapter 11, and and at verse 31. There we're told that Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, The first step in Abraham's journey into Canaan begins with his family departing the great city of Ur of the Chaldeans. And to properly understand this adventure of faith, we need to know something about Ur, or Ur, as we think about it. Um, Because uh, this happened so long ago, and in such a different context from our own lives, in some regards, that's kind of hard for us to imagine what this was like and how it might in any way relate to our lives and our time. After all, we live in a highly cultured, very sophisticated time in history. And Abram lived back there, you know, when everybody just kind of plowed dirt and did things like that. And that's kind of the view that naturally comes to mind, but that's an incorrect view. Of the situation. Simply put, the more archaeologists and historians and scientists examine the history and the culture of Ur, the more it becomes evident just how little, on a fundamental level, human civilization has changed. If one strips away the technological uh, aids, which have been been developed over the years, and just focuses on what the basic activities and skills are 
that make up modern society, he or she will very soon find that they're much the same as they were in the days of Abraham in Ur. And for our purposes this morning, we have to paint with sort of a broad brush because this isn't meant to be a class on sociology or history. But it's important that we consider this at least for a moment. Modern society, in broad terms, takes in various disciplines, we might say. There's communication, transportation, technology, agriculture and industry, investment and finance, military development, medicine, and government. Now, those are all important parts of our modern society of your life today. And those very same priorities can be seen in the culture of this most ancient of cities, Ur of the Chaldeans. And don't be mistaken, the pursuit of these things were not undertaken crudely or in some primitive way, you know, where the Chaldeans were had a square wheel to begin with, and then somebody said, boy, this isn't working so well, as they bumped along the road and said, maybe we should try making this thing round. And so then they, they made it round. It's not like that at all. That is a myth perpetuated by those who imagine the development of mankind and society as a product of evolution and natural selection. But it's not the evidence of history. I'll just highlight one quick example of several of these areas and and try to exhibit for you for just a moment the degree of sophistication involved in this ancient culture. Let's start with communication. In Ur, this was a vital part of the daily operations of that society. And you know how we know that? Because we still have the written records of things that went on in this most ancient of civilizations. We have thousands and thousands of tablets recording all kinds of events from that time. You can read about it in tablets and clay, stone, clay stone and clay tablets, excuse me, that are 4,000 years old. Um, You have records being preserved for all kinds of records, legal records, medical records, um, financial records. You have communications cataloged and a lively network of information that was carried on daily in this city. One library in this city was discovered and it produced 23,000 volumes on every subject from history to medicine. And this is the oldest organized culture that we have, that we have record of in society. And you have this library with 23,000 volumes in it. Means of uh, transportation were being constantly improved. As I mentioned, the wheel just wasn't a crude, untried invention in a culture, but it was a commonly used tool. This city yielded the oldest evidence of how it was used. And it was employed in developing lethal war machines, the transportation of goods, 
and increase in agricultural output. The streets of Ur were paved. They weren't dirt tracks that you drag square wheels through. They were paved streets that people could travel on comfortably. In addition, and they were well maintained, perhaps better than ours. In addition, sailing and navigation were highly developed skills among these people. Um, Technology was being applied in every discipline, from creating sophisticated and beautiful pieces of jewelry, uh, uh, um, and doing that out of various precious stones and metals, and rare metals. Uh, There's a golden dagger from Ur in the British Museum that could have been produced yesterday. It's so skillfully and beautifully constructed. I mean, it just looks brand new. And it's thousands of years old from this culture. In that same museum is a, tra- is a cracked, clear disc of glass, probably about this big around. And it's there, and it's from even before the days of Abraham. But it's not a piece of glass, just a piece of glass. It's actually a magnifying glass. And it's clear enough to see details and to enlarge small print. So that when something was printed small on one of those clay tablets, you could use this magnifying glass for old people to look at it and blow it up so they could see it better. It's not glass, however. It's highly polished stone. And scientists assume that if they could, by some highly sophisticated process, produce a magnifying glass, then surely they could produce a lens that could be used telescopically as well. And that seems likely, given their knowledge of astronomy. It seems, and and they're not certain of this yet, but it seems that the scientists at Ur even made a study of the northern lights the first recorded history of those lights being seen is in one of those tablets that comes to us from this ancient civilization. The people of Ur did surgery, the earliest example of brain surgery and performing autopsies comes from that culture. And the scalpels that they used, that were used by their surgeons, are considered the sharpest blades in the world. Ten times sharper than the razor blade. They were made of uh, uh, obsidian glass, which is volcanic glass. And when they're cut in a certain way, they're so sharp, if you just touch your skin, it'll split open with them. And they use those as scalpels to perform surgery. Now, I think you're getting the point. This was a wealthy, highly advanced, and sophisticated culture. Mining, agriculture, industry, and other aspects of modern society were being carried on in Ur with all the advancement technology, experimentation, and study would allow. Ur was one of the greatest and most advanced cultures in the world, no less so than what we see in the world today in the context of its time. And God told Abraham to walk it all away from it all and follow him. So when we look at the story and we say, well, Abraham was back there in those crude days and all he had to do was go from you know, one crude place to another 
Um, that's not like, like we live in. We're this great, sophisticated society. That's not true. That's, that's a wrong impression that you have. He was asked to leave a place that had beautiful buildings, beautiful structures, beautiful gardens, advanced technology, advanced learning. He was asked to leave that and to follow God. There also had another modern aspect and one that actually throws us back in time. And that is that it was wedded to worshiping the creature. In fact, anything in the creation rather than the creator. In the city was the world-renowned temple to the moon god Sin. This god was worshipped in a sophisticated system of politics, fertility, and astrology. And there was a massive temple in Ur to him. One of the reasons that this city, despite being abandoned millennia ago, has not been lost and forgotten is because there's a great tower in this city. It was built under the name of this cult of the worship of Sin, the moon god, to bring the priests of that cult between their gods and the earth so that they could stand between the earth and their god. And even though there's been times when it's been almost completely covered by sand, it's so high that it has always, some, some portion of it is always stuck up. And so anybody going through this area of the world would see that and, and be attracted to it. This advanced culture, dedicated and besotted with this apostate religion, is evidence of Paul's words in Romans 1. We've quoted them many times. In Romans 1, verse 21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, here they are so advanced in their culture, but so crude in their religion. So far advanced in in so many areas of life and culture and society, and yet worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And that mimics our world today. That's where we are. Advanced in culture, but crude in religion. Again, Guj, a commentator on the book of Hebrews, describes idolaters as those who are kept in awe by that which is indeed nothing. Only a mere show and fantasy. And that was the case with the people in Ur. Now, it's out of this confused mix of cultural development and theological degeneration that the living and true God calls Abraham, along with the others mentioned, including Sarai, of course, and Lot. The Jews refer to Ur as the fiery furnace that Abraham was delivered from. And they do this in part because the area is a bed of uh, 
bitumen, which is asphalt, really, a sticky black uh, liquid. Um, it's kind of a semi-solid form of petroleum. That was used as mortar in the bricks uh, to hold the construction of that giant ziggurat, for example, uh, and other buildings together, and that's why it still stands, because it has this tar-like substance that's holding it, holding the bricks together. From Ur, Abraham, Terah, Lot, Sarah, and so on, travel north along the well-worn trade route to a place called Haran, or Haran. And Haran was in a very important and strategic location or part of Mesopotamia. If you are traveling east, west, or south, you have to use the route through Haran to keep you uh, near fresh water so that you have a constant supply of fresh water. The only other way to travel is through a dangerous and punishing desert which was cruel and death lethal, really. Haran has many of the same qualities as Ur, including a fabulous temple erected in the name of Sin, the moon god. And because it's situated on the axis of trade routes uh, to all parts of the world, it was to become the western terminus of the Silk Route, if you're familiar with that. And from it, large donkey caravans headed out in all directions. Now, we're not told why the family of Terah stopped here. Most assume that it was because Terah was nearing death. But while the journey is stalled here, and they're living in this busy area, Abram, soon to be Abraham, by the grace of God, seriously increases his own wealth. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 5, we read, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, and then the passage goes on. But they set out with all these possessions, and these possessions increased while they were in Haran. And they gathered people there, too. And so this is a, a, a small nation that's traveling from Haran into Canaan. Now, as we think about all that background, we come to think about the call here of Abraham. And I want you to consider his call by God to leave this region in which his family had lived for generations. Back in Genesis chapter 12, it says in verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who cur him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Go out of this country, this well-developed but spiritually corrupt society. Go out from your wider family connections and even out from your father's house eventually. All of whom seem to have been carried off by the spiritual apostasy that plagued the region. His wider family, 
even his father's household, had been idolaters. We read that in Joshua chapter 24 and verses 1 through 3. Joshua is speaking there. We're told that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Tyre the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. There's so much that can be said about that passage. I made Abram's offspring many. I gave him one son, Isaac. And of course, we know that it's through that all the covenant promises come and that this is a spiritual offspring that's being referred to and not only a natural one and that you and, you and me, we're the children of Abraham by faith. But it came through that one son, Isaac. And it's an interesting way the Lord says it there. I gave him many offspring. I gave him Isaac. And you think, whoa, that, shouldn't he be having many children? But he is and he does. But you notice the nature of the call here. Guj again says the word translated go out is a compound. And it here implies an utter leaving and departing from a thing. So the picture is given to us is that Abraham is not to gather as much of the old culture that's there in in Mesopotamia and drag that with him as he goes into Canaan. But he's to walk away from all of this from the idols and the idol worship of his father and all of those who were associated with his family. Matthew Henry describes it this way. We have here the call by which Abram was removed out of the land of his nativity into the land of promise, which was designed both to try his faith and obedience and also to separate him and set him apart for God and for special service and favors, which were further designed. We get a little deeper picture of this call from Stephen. So we turn now to the New Testament and we look in Acts chapter 7 and here's Stephen delivering his inspired sermon, the one that ends up making him a martyr. He's stoned to death for saying these things. But in Acts chapter 7 and verse 2, Stephen says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. There's a couple of things here that that sort of deepen our understanding of Abraham's call. And the most important one is that Stephen says that it was the God of glory who appeared to Abraham and told him to go out. Or the God characterized by glory. The God found in the Shekinah, in the Shekinah glory, that appeared to Abraham in Ur, and spoke to him directly. And that's important because when we're looking at the story, if we just read it superficially, it sounds like Abraham got this call when he was in Haran. 
and that Terah got the call before. But now it was Abraham who received the call from the Lord in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Terah removed because his son had had this call with him. But it's Abraham who had the call from the very beginning to separate himself from these things. Now, with that background, we get to our main text for the rest of the time that we have this morning. And that's Hebrews 11.8, where we're told that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called or when he was being called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. You'll notice, beloved, that this Hebrews passage um, tells us, tells you, that it was Abraham's faith that moved him to obey the command of God to leave the region. He moved on account of his faith. That same faith, as we'll see as we go through this story of Abraham, continued to move him to obey God in all manner of things until the end of his life on earth. John Calvin says, By these two things, his promptness in obeying and his perseverance, was Abraham's faith most clearly proved. Proved and testified to. So when you're looking at Abraham and you're thinking, well, what does Abraham have to say to me about how I should be faithful before God? The answer is in these two things, promptness in obeying and perseverance. He is the example to you of those two things. Now, what was the manner of his faith? What was this faith that produced this obedience? We might answer this question right from our text. All we have to do is look at Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of of things not seen, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever will draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is the reward, or that he rewards, those who seek him. And when you read that definition of faith... And you just look at this one statement about Abraham, he becomes the poster boy for that statement. Doesn't he? It's, what does it say about faith? Well, it's looking at things that are unseen. Well, what does this tell us? He went out not knowing where he was going. Not having seen what God had promised him. But Paul elaborates even further on this subject of Abraham's faith in Romans chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5. And there Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes... In him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
And this is the kind of faith that we see Abraham exercising here. Faith in God, faith in God's word. He doesn't do the work and then say, "Um, I trust God. He trusts God and then does what he's commanded to do. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul puts it this way. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So it was that faith in the living God and his promises that justifies the sinner. It was the sort of sincere faith that produces obedience. Now, the quality of his obedience is bound up in the word itself. Now, perhaps you, some of you, and you children, you, especially you who have public or uh, formal teachers, um, you might want to watch out for this, but have any of you ever had a teacher who gave you a test, and as they handed out the test, they said, make sure you read all the instructions before you start the test? And then the last sentence in the instructions is, go to the last question. And the last question says, turn in your paper and your pencil. That's because that's all the test is, is whether you're paying attention and whether you can follow instructions. Well, some of you have had that. I can tell you're shaking your heads. Now, as a student, you might consider that clever or cruel. Um, after I watched all the other students finish in 10 minutes and I was still working away answering questions, working my way down to the bottom, I felt like I was being cruelly used by the teacher. But it's a ploy to see if you're paying attention, if you're actually reading the instructions and then responding to what's there. And this word, obedience, is really well illustrated by this point. Because it speaks of the actions of one who has, with attention and expectation, listened carefully and then acted according to the instructions. And that's what it tells us Abraham did. He listened to God with attention and expectation. God appeared to him in his glory. And he spoke to him, and Abraham paid attention to the whole thing. And he listened, expecting to be instructed, expecting to be guided, expecting to be told what to do by God. And he listened carefully, and when it was all done, he then acted according to the instructions that were given to him by God. Calvin says of Abraham, that he did, not, he did nothing but by God's command. And no doubt it was one of the chief things which belonged to faith. Not to move a step except God's word shows us the way. And as a lantern gives us light according to what David says in Psalm 119 verse 105. His faith then was not of an ordinary kind. Which thus broke through all hindrances. And carried him where the Lord called him to go. And I love those last words of Calvin. His faith was not of an ordinary kind. It was not of an ordinary kind because it broke through 
all the hindrances that would have kept him from doing what he was called on to do by God, and it carried him to the place where God would have him go. And when you think about that in practical terms, that's the way it happens, isn't it? We see some command from the word of God. We see some instruction from the word of God. And our inclination is to say, well, yeah, I know I should be doing that, but. And then we have our list. And interestingly, one of them would be, well, I know that I should be taking time for my personal devotions and time to prayer with the Lord, pray to the Lord, but. I live in this highly advanced technical, technical society where things are moving so quickly. I don't have time to do that. Back when Abraham was around, when people were just plowing in the dirt, you know, people had time to sit around and, and contemplate things and pray and do those sort of things. But I live in a society where things are really going and are going fast, and I just don't have time to do that. Some days I do, and I'm thankful when I do, but I just don't have time to add that into the discipline of my life my culture is too sophisticated for that do you see how that doesn't play if you understand the circumstances Abraham was carried through all the excuses all the hindrances to do what God called on him to do and as we've seen already and will continue to see this is the sort of faith that as John Owen says Hebrews 11 celebrates. This is the kind of faith that's set before us here. Do you want to know what what faith is? This is what it is. This is how it acts. This is what it produces. That's what this chapter is all about. And I mentioned this last week. It's it's not for us to take these people and individuals and sort of make a, a Mount Rushmore out of them. And say, here are all the great heroes of the faith. And we like to look at them and we we like to think about all the wonderful things they did. They're there, as the next chapter of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 12, to be witnesses. Not observers of what you're doing, but witnesses to you of what you should do. That's what they're there to be. And they're examples to us of how to live godly in the world. Now, what was the promised inheritance here? Now, this faithful obedience required of Abraham that he let go of what he had in hand. What was comfortable and what seemed solid for what, though promised by God, was afar off and unknown. And that was a unique trial of his faith. Here was everything he was comfortable with, everything he was familiar with. Here was a a financial culture that he understood and knew how to take advantage of because he got richer and richer. He knew how to take advantage of this society and the way it worked. He knew how to carry himself in this context. And he's going to let go of all of that to embrace he doesn't know what. He doesn't know what. He had an inheritance where he was. One that he could see 
and that was tangible amid a fully developed culture, a place that, from the world's view, would be one of the best places on earth to live. It was a location full of potential, full of excitement, uh, rich experience, where one could indulge any interest from pleasure to business. But as God had appointed him a richer inheritance, one that was to come by the Redeemer promised to Adam at the beginning of the world. Now, there are those who try to limit this promise to Abraham to the land of Canaan. But as John Owen says, that's absurd and contrary to the whole design of Scripture. And it is. It also reduces the covenant promises of God to a temporal matter. The covenant promise of God to Abraham had to do with him possessing land in Canaan, which, by the way, he never did. That's the covenant promise. When clearly it's a spiritual one. Remember what it says in Galatians 3. Know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The very heart and life of this promise to Abraham rested in the fact that in him, that is in Abraham, was the blessing of all the families of the earth, which was in Christ alone the promised seed. So as we see in the next two verses, by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now he came into possession of small portions of land but not to any substantial land or place that could be called a city because he was looking for that place, that city that has foundations whose designer and builder was God. As the Apostle Paul says for us all in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied because our inheritance is beyond this life and this world. And then we're told that he went on not knowing where. And that's the last thing for us to consider from verse 8. He went out not knowing where he was going. The implication is that God, (coughs) excuse me, did not give Abraham details because they would have hampered his exercise of faith. He was to move on the bare promise of God away from everything he knew and had learned to rely on. Home, family, away from the sophisticated but pagan cultures of Ur and Haran, and let God lead him to a promised but unknown destination. The obedience required here demanded a willing spirit of self-denial on the part of Abraham. You can well imagine that not only was the environment of first Ur and then Haran comfortable and familiar, but most men and women want to know as much in advance as possible where they're going and why. We want to know that, don't we? Don't you want to know where you're going and why you're going there? 
um, very few of us have not made plans for the week ahead. We've made plans because we want to know what we have to do, where we're going to be, when to be there, and so on. That's in our nature, at least for most people. But Abraham's being asked to go, to move, not just take a little walk, not just to go for a drive. Well, when we were younger, sometimes after church, I'd take Bonnie on a drive and wouldn't tell her where we were going. And we'd just go out and drive around, and sometimes we'd do one thing or another. But I'd like to surprise her by doing that. This isn't like taking a little drive like that and surprising somebody. This is moving everything you have away from everything that's familiar to you to a place I'm not going to tell you about. And you're just going to have to trust me. That's it. Now, Abraham was content with knowing that putting his trust in God his destination was safe. Proverbs 16.3 is familiar. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Guru says here, such ought our obedience to be to God's call and any manifestation of his will. It must be a simple obedience and subjection to God's will without inquiring after the reason thereof or without objecting any scruples or difficulties against it. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now just to emphasize this one more time, as we said last week, these examples, this example of Abraham is not set before you to serve as a monument to just be observed and honored. It's a practical example set before you for emulation and copying. John Owen says that Abraham is set up throughout Scripture as the standard or measure of faith for all believers in every age. So if Abraham is simply a heroic figure to you, it's God's intention that he should be more than that that he should be a pattern for all those who would live godly. So how does that pray out practically for us? Well, the God we worship and serve, beloved, is first of all worthy to demand this sort of obedience from all of those who come to him in Jesus Christ. Now, if I come to you and say, look, I want you just to leave your home, pack up what you can carry, and I want you to follow me, and I'm not telling you where we're going. I don't think I'd get too many volunteers. I don't think that, the, you know, the train of, of travel would be very big. Um, it's just not, wouldn't, wouldn't happen. And I don't have anything that would give you the confidence to trust me in that sort of situation. But God does. Your God does. Everything about him in the glory and wonder of who he is, in the whole testimony and scripture of his steadfast love, puts him in a position when he says to you, I want you to follow me and not this world in which you're living, 
we can surrender to that. Because this is God. This is our God. This is the God who has redeemed us. This is the God who loves us. This is the God who cares for us and has proved that care for us. And we trust him with our lives and with our circumstances. In Psalm 25 and verse 8, it says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. And that's the path we walk in. There are many voices in the world saying, come and follow me right now. Give me your life and your allegiance and your trust. Many of you young people are hearing those voices and they're calling on you to come. Follow me. Follow the world. Follow the things of the world. Listen to us. We know what's right. Put your present and future care in our hands. And the, and the, the wise response to any call like that should always be, why should I? Why should I put my hands and my life, my life in your hands? But with God and his testimony of steadfast love, the question is reversed. Why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I trust God? Why shouldn't I follow this God who loves me and cares for me and sent his son to die for me? Justifying faith has several qualities, beloved, and you see them here in Abraham. It trusts trusts God's word and promise alone. It counts his promises as the most precious possession of all. It doesn't stand upon sight, but upon the character of God himself. And it renders quick obedience when the will of God is clear. So here you are, some of you, trying to raise your families in the context of this world today. And the whole world is saying to you, this is the wise way you should go, and this is the path you should take. And God says, no, this is the wise way to go, and this is the path you should take. And the world is looking at you as you take that path, and they're mocking you, and they're saying you're archaic, and you're, 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 you're weak, and, and you're maybe even mentally disturbed a little bit. And they're, they're calling you on that, on that ground, and God is here calling you to follow him. And he's doing it on the basis of the faith that you have, which trusts God's word and trusts God's promises. You men and women of faith and and children, you've been called out of the world to be a witness to the world. The Lord who meant to take Abraham, uh, or to make Abraham, excuse me, a root out of which his church should sprout and grow, would not suffer him to be in danger of idolatry. It's the same with you and me. He says to you through the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, don't be equally, unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a, a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. 
then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There's a scene from one day in the, in the life of your Savior, and it's most significant in this context. It's the day when Jesus was receiving little children to himself, and after he rebukes uh, his disciples, uh, a young rich man approaches him, a wealthy ruler, and he asks Jesus what he must do to inherit the kingdom of God. The thing that Abraham was promised here, that he would inherit the kingdom of God if he did this. This young ruler said, well, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And you may recall that after claiming that he had kept all the commandments from his youth, Jesus said to him, well, then just go sell everything you have and come and follow me. And we're told that the rich ruler was brokenhearted. Why? Because he was very what? Rich. rich. He was very wealthy. And parting with all of that was just so much. And Luke says this next in verses 23 through 30 of Luke 18. But when he heard these things, the rich ruler, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter pipes up right at this moment. And he says, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Peter's kind of saying, See, he couldn't do this. He didn't want to do that. But Lord, look at us. We've done it. We've humbled ourselves. We've given up everything to follow you. And he's trying to sort of put himself in the places almost as a martyr. Look at us, Lord. We've given up everything to follow you. And so we're really the just in your eyes. And the Lord turns to Peter and says to him, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And the Lord's actually saying to Peter, Peter, by obeying me and following me, you haven't given up anything. You're richer than you ever were because you're with me. And the question is, is this the sort of trust and confidence in, in, in God that through our lives speaks to the world? They don't know anything like this. They're committed to an all-out investment in this world, beloved. And it keeps disappointing, it keeps falling short and leaving men, women, teens, and even children disillusioned. Those who live as Abraham did, by faith in God, present a testimony that by the grace of God and through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're born again to a living or a lively hope that involves an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, which is preserved in heaven for us. 
And Peter, after reminding us of all that, says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 15. He adds, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for that hope that is in you. Are you really looking for this kind of inheritance? One that's undefiled? One that's unfading? One that's promised to you by the word of God? Is that what you're looking for? And is that the way you live? Well, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about that hope. Why do you have your heads in heaven? Why do you have your hearts in heaven? Be ready to give an answer for that. We live that out, and then we have to be ready to respond to it. And do it, he says, with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, which you will be for having that position, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's Peter's counsel on this. And Abraham is living this out for us. And we're going to begin to see, as we continue to go through this, how Abraham lives it out in the most practical terms. And we pray that God will use it to show us how to live in our time, in our culture, in the most practical terms, in a way that exhibits our faith, so that we can be a witness to those who are outside of this faith and be prepared to give a defense concerning our hope because we are in this faith by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Abraham. And Lord, we pray that we would not just hold up Abraham as one of the great heroes of the Bible, but we would set him before us as an example of living by faith. And seek, Lord, to exhibit that faith which he exhibited, that faith which you have given to us through our trust and confidence in you and your promises to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, if there's anyone without that faith, without that promise, without that hope, we pray, Lord, that they would see what was required of Abraham to put his trust in you and your word. And he was blessed for moving forward. And Lord, we pray that even now, that heart, will be given the grace to put his or her trust in you and your word and step away from all that's comfortable and known and step towards the promised inheritance through faith in the redeeming work of Christ at Calvary. These things, Lord, we pray for one another and we ask them in the precious name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.